KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. As Sheriff Bill Gore retires, a look at what's next. A lot of people are looking for change, but what that new leader will look like depends on who you're talking to. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The backlog for VA disability benefits continues. As of the beginning of the year, the VA said it had a total of more than 260,000 claims that had been pending longer than 125 days. And local art to check out in our weekend preview. That's ahead on Midday Edition. I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. In a surprise move, San Diego County Sheriff Bill Gore announced that he will not serve out the remainder of his term and will instead retire effective February 3rd. The decision comes at a turbulent time for the county sheriff's office, which in recent years has had numerous in-custody deaths and COVID outbreaks in detention facilities. Joining us now to debrief on the outgoing sheriff's tenure is Kelly Davis, a San Diego writer who's been covering the county jails. Kelly, welcome. Hi, Jade. Thanks. So Gore had already announced his retirement last year, a term that would have effectively ended in January of next year. Do we have any sense of why he didn't see out the rest of his term? No, not really. And, you know, he issued a a statement announcing his retirement and he didn't really give any specific reason for leaving. He did mention, though, that his retirement will allow him to spend more time with his wife. He talked about how she's made many sacrifices for his job. So I don't know if we read between the lines and say that his wife said, honey, you know, it's, it's time for us to spend a retirement together. But we don't have any one specific reason. Do we know who's going to replace him? So the County Board of Supervisors will need to appoint someone, and they'll do this in March, they've said. So Gore initially became sheriff because former Sheriff Bill Collender had announced his retirement in April 2009, and Gore was under sheriff at that point. So the Board of Supervisors figured, we'll just appoint this guy to be sheriff. And then when Gore ran for sheriff in 2010, he he won easily. So Kelly Martinez, who is currently 
Gore's under sheriff. And there was speculation that she would be appointed sheriff and then kind of ease her way, you know, easily be elected in, in 2022. She said she will not seek the appointment from the Board of Supervisors to be interim sheriff. Um, and Nathan Fletcher, who's the chair of the Board of Supervisors, he said he would not support nominating her, appointing her interim sheriff. He said he would not support anyone who's going to be on the 2022 ballot being interim sheriff because he feels that gives the candidate an unfair advantage. So the short answer to your question is we're not sure yet who will serve or who will be sheriff for the remainder of Gore's term, but we'll probably start hearing some speculation soon since that appointment will be made in March by the Board of Supervisors. So who are the candidates then expected to run in next year's election? So there's Kelly Martinez. She's currently the undersheriff. She recently switched her party to Democrat and has received endorsements from a lot of big name Democrats around the county. Dave Myers, he is a retired sheriff's commander. He challenged Gore in 2018. Uh, He was unsuccessful, but did come in as a good showing against an incumbent sheriff. Then John Hemmerling, he's a former police officer and he currently heads up the city of San Diego's city attorney's office's criminal division. So, so far there are three people vying to be the next San Diego County Sheriff. Can you give us a brief overview of Gore's tenure as Sheriff of San Diego County? So as I mentioned, he was appointed sheriff in 2009, elected in 2010. He's a former FBI field officer in San Diego. And I think the first few several years of his tenure were pretty incident free. You know, he's been credited with doing a good job handling public safety realignment, which is a state law that shifted the responsibility for some offenders from prisons to jails. Um, So he's gotten a lot of praise for, for handling that well. But lately, there have been this spate of scandals. One of his captains, Marco Garmo, was sent to prison for illegal gun sales. His former deputy, Richard Fisher, has pleaded guilty to assaulting at least 16 women. And the first charges ever brought against a law enforcement officer in San Diego County in a shooting case was against Gore's deputy, Aaron Johnson, who shot a man named Nicholas Bills. Nicholas had a mental illness, was kind of having a, a breakdown. Aaron Johnson shot Nicholas in the back as Nicholas was, was running away. And then there are the issues with the jails. I've been writing about them since 2013, and things just have not gotten better. And in 2021, San Diego jails saw the most deaths ever, despite having a smaller jail population due to COVID. And there have been a string of lawsuits over these deaths and millions of dollars in legal settlements. Um, And there's also a state audit that's going to be coming out soon looking at deaths in San Diego County jails. Do you think these incidents are going to impact Gore's legacy as sheriff? You know, I think a lot of people give Gore credit for being very law and order. Folks who aren't in the media and who aren't criminal justice reformers might not be following this stuff. Many voters, members of the public, don't really care much about inmate deaths or COVID outbreaks in jails. And Gore is very mild-mannered. You know, you don't see him out there drawing attention to himself. So, you know, he's very low-key. And, you know, I think that the public has a short memory. But like I said, there are some high-profile investigations and lawsuits against the Sheriff's Department coming up, and that state audit is coming up. There's a class-action lawsuit by the ACLU over 
conditions in jails during COVID, but that's my long way of saying, ask me in 10 years <laughs> and, you know, we'll see where things stand. So. You know, you mentioned a number of scandals. Some have speculated that Gore's early retirement comes at a time where public trust in the department is low. Is there any truth to that? I think what I'm hearing more is that it's not necessarily public low public trust, but department morale is very low. It's very low among sworn staff. It's very low among jail staff, including jail medical staff who are also working just these crazy overtime hours. So I think a lot of people are looking for new, fresh leadership. They want change. But what that change will look like and what that new leader will look like, it, it really depends on who you're talking to. I've been speaking with Kelly Davis, a San Diego writer who covers San Diego County jails. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Veterans suffering from certain medical conditions became eligible for presumptive VA disability benefits last year, but the claims they're filing have added to the agency's huge backlog. American Homefront's Carson Frame has the story. Decades after he deployed to Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and Thailand in the late 60s, Army veteran Jim Scott developed urinary symptoms that bothered him enough to go to the doctor. He asked for a urine sample and he came back in the room and he says, guess what, Jim? He says, you got some urine in your blood because the little valve was full of blood instead of urine. It was bladder cancer, more than 20 tumors, one the size of an orange that would require surgery and chemo. Scott thought Agent Orange, an herbicide used by the U.S. government in Vietnam, was to blame. So he filed a claim with the Department of Veterans Affairs, which said he didn't have enough proof that his military service caused his illness. After his cancer was treated, Scott lobbied Congress to recognize the link between bladder cancer and Agent Orange so that veterans could get VA disability benefits without specific proof. It finally happened last year. I was ecstatic. It was like, are you kidding me? They finally, you know, breaking news. VA expands benefits for disability claims for conditions related to certain toxic exposures. That's what I remember most. Three new presumptive conditions were added, bladder cancer, hypothyroidism, and Parkinsonism. The VA is sending letters to eligible vets. But Scott says he received a packet of paperwork that didn't fully explain the process. It's like, okay, once I fill it out, am I done? Do I just wait? Or is there something else that I should do? So that's kind of where my confusion lies right now. Veterans advocates say the VA's letters are boilerplate, with information that's not tailored to veterans-specific issues or claims. That leads to mass amounts of miscommunication and misunderstanding amongst veterans. Stacy Ray Simcox is a law professor and director of the Veterans Advocacy Clinic at Stetson University. And it also means veterans run around trying to get information they don't need to get 
because VA already has it, but they don't know VA has it because VA didn't tell them that. Even if veterans submit all the right information, that doesn't mean the money will start flowing anytime soon. The VA already has more than 70,000 claims to review stemming from Parkinsonism, bladder cancer, and hypothyroidism. And that's on top of a long-standing, massive claims backlog for other veterans and their families. As of the beginning of the year, the VA said it had a total of more than 260,000 claims that had been pending longer than 125 days. While the VA has been struggling with a claims backlog for years, Secretary Dennis McDonough told reporters last month that the pandemic made it worse. We stopped, for example, providing what we call compensation and pension exams during the pandemic to ensure that veterans were not exposed to the virus. Those medical exams are usually the first step after a veteran files a claim. McDonough says they've resumed now and adds that the VA is taking other steps to catch up. Under our current plan, where we're having workers, employees work at uh, overtime, we will, between that added overtime, automation of records, digitization of records, and hiring of additional people, get that down under 100,000 claims by early 2024. But that's still a long time for veterans who've been battling health conditions and the VA for years. And Jim Scott, the bladder cancer survivor, worries that some of his comrades won't follow through on such a drawn-out process. Some veterans may go in and apply and not hear anything for an extensive period of time and not keep the claim active if that's what is required. Uh, I do have a concern about that. He encourages vets to file claims, stay on top of them, and be proactive until they get their benefits. I'm Carson Frame in San Antonio. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. In our weekend arts preview, we'll take you to sculptures that are like otherworldly portals, a theatrical and puppetry take on the snowy streets of Ezra Jack Keats stories, plus some Monday Night Soul. Joining me with details is KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans. Julia, welcome. Hi, Jade. Thanks for having me. So Quint Gallery in La Jolla has some new work on view for an acclaimed local sculptor. What can we expect? Right, so Quint's smaller gallery on Girard, there are two. They are just about to open an exhibition of new sculptures by San Diego-based artist Sasha Kuzel-Ribstein, and her work is instantly recognizable. I love the way she makes these sort of portals. Um, she fashions sculptures into something that looks otherworldly or alien, or maybe it's from the bottom of the ocean, and she uses a drip form method that make parts of her work look alive, or at least like it's suspended in time, like someone just pressed pause on it, and any minute it could start moving again. And a lot of these drip forms are gold or pearlescent, so it's just really striking against the rest of the sculpture, which sometimes looks like lava rock. That's all at their 7722 Gerard space, formerly known as Quint One, and Ribstein will be there from 1 to 4 on Saturday afternoon. 
And there's some other interesting works on display at Quint. What can we find there? Yeah, so at the main space, kind of across the street, they recently opened a show of works on paper by Manny Farber. And these are pieces he made in the period between 1968 and 1980, which is right before he moved to Southern California. And it's kind of a distinct period in his style. He cut these large shapes, huge shapes, and then worked layers and layers into it, pouring paint from above even. So while these are technically works on paper, and that's also the title of the exhibition, they seem so much more sculptural than that. And also in the back of Quint's main gallery, in the tiny The Museum of space, they're showing a series of traditional canta textiles. And Quint is hosting an open house style reception Saturday afternoon, but their gallery hours are 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Tuesday through Saturday. Now for some theater, uh, youth theater, in fact. What stood out to you about Junior Theater's production of Ezra Jack Keats stories? First, these stories, for sure. The Snowy Day is such an iconic children's book about a boy rediscovering his neighborhood after a snowfall. It won the Caldecott Medal in the 60s, and the setting was modeled after the diverse tenement neighborhood of Keats' own childhood. And this junior theater production, which is directed by Candace Crystal, they've paired up with puppetry artists Bridget Roundtree and Ian Gunn from Animal Cracker Conspiracy. And they've been working together with the cast and crew to create these shadow puppets and projections, as well as a handcrafted puppet dog. And this production run is just this weekend. So that's tonight at seven and then two o'clock shows Saturday and Sunday. They shortened the run to reduce COVID risk. And they're also going to be seating audience members in family pods. That's San Diego Junior Theater's production of The Snowy Day and other stories by Ezra Jack Keats on stage this weekend only. More visual art. This one in the North County SIP Art Studio and Gallery in San Marcos is opening a group exhibition tomorrow. Tell us about Herd Immunity. Yeah, this one's curated by Hugh M. Davies, who was the longtime director of Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego from the early 80s until about five years ago. And he has enlisted the work of Claudia Cano, Perry Vasquez, Neil Kendricks, and Michael Sitaris for this exhibition. And there's no theme connecting the work, which is kind of refreshing. And so he picked the term herd immunity just to mark this exhibition's particular place in time. And these artists are all great and unique. Claudia Cano's known for her vivid pop art collage pieces or her more disruptive performance pieces too. Perry Vasquez was one of the San Diego Art Prize recipients and he has recently been working through a massive palm tree painting phase, but he's also known for really intricate character-driven illustrations. And Neil Kendricks, who currently has an exhibition on view at Oceanside Museum of Art, that one is illustration and sketches set to original short stories. He also makes use of found canvases. So think like the pages of books that he draws directly on. And I think he'll be showing some of those works at SIP. 
And finally, there's painter Michael Sateras, who will show a series of abstract dog paintings kind of in the pop style. And each one is inspired by celebrities or historical figures or even just concepts. And there will be an opening reception Saturday from 4 to 7 o'clock. And they'll have refreshments. And then after that, it will be viewable by appointment. That's Herd Immunity on view until March 5th at SIP Gallery in San Marcos. Finally, some Monday night music to ease back into the work week. Blues, soul, and Americana singer Shane Hall continues his Monday night residency at the Casbah. What's on uh, this Monday? Yeah, so this is not only a three-week showcase for local soul music, but it's also part of the Casbah's 33rd anniversary. And for each of Shane Hall's nights, he's been there every Monday, he will be sharing the stage with another singer. This week is Ash Easton, or Hollander, and she put out an EP in 2020, which is really fantastic. And then Shane Hall, who will be performing first, by the way, he just released his new EP a few weeks ago called Slow. I featured a single from this in December on our Five Songs to Hear in San Diego series, and that one was called Life Up, such a genre-bending track for him. And now that the album is out, I've been really loving the opening track. It's not even two minutes long, but it's really captivating. And this one is also called Slow. I will leave you with that. Feel every kiss straight through Touch pushes souls to move That's Shane Hall, who will perform at the Casbah Monday night. You can find details on these and more events or sign up for Julia's weekly arts newsletter at kpbs.org arts. As always, be sure to check with organizers for last-minute cancellations before heading out. I've been speaking with KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans. Julia, thanks. Thanks for having me, Jade. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.